We just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to our first episode. Thin Air is an independently produced and financed podcast. We look to support from our listeners to fund the investigation, production, and publication of our podcast. If you'd like to support us, please visit our website at www.thinairpodcast.com or visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thinairpodcast. Patreon is a website that allows people to support the arts by donating any amount of money per month to support artists. If you'd like to support us, which we'd really appreciate, please visit our Patreon page. The address again is patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. Now onto the show. Welcome to the second episode of Thin Air. Thin Air is a podcast dedicated to investigating missing persons cases from across the world. Many missing persons cases are cold cases, meaning all investigative leads are spent, time has passed, they are open cases, unsolved. Thin Air is a podcast devoted to warming these cold cases again. We hope to do this by reigniting the discussion involving the missing person. You will hear interviews and clips from the people involved with each case. We will break down the circumstances of their last known whereabouts, following each clue to as logical a conclusion as is possible. We will talk about the evidence in each case, discussing the theories for where the missing person can be now and what could have happened to them. My name is Daniel. When I first reported on the disappearance of Charlie Allen Jr. in our first episode, there was a kind of disconnect between myself and the case, given that I am physically located in Idaho and Charlie Allen disappeared in Massachusetts. I had to rely solely on the internet to make connections with the people related to his disappearance. This was challenging on many fronts, especially when it came to trying to get in contact with people at the police department. One phone call always led to another, and that one would lead to a voicemail. It seemed never-ending. After all, I'm not an investigative journalist, or at least up to this point, I had never been, and neither had Jordan. So, when we were deciding on which case to investigate next, we opted for a local case of a missing woman from 1977. We record this podcast in Boise, Idaho, and this disappearance took place just 40 minutes away in the nearby city of Emmett. This allowed us to speak with detectives directly, visit the locations we were reading about, and it also gave us access to the Idaho State Archive since we could literally drive there. Suddenly, we were investigative journalists. We were, or at least it felt like, detectives on the beat. We could go to these sites, talk to these people. It became part of our world. It was a whole different reality than it had been before. The case suddenly seemed to take on a life of itself, and in many ways, it consumed our lives. Marie Ann Watson went missing in 1977. The case seemed interesting enough on the surface a mother who goes missing in the midst of a custody battle. Underneath, however, was a case about Satanism, ritual child abuse, murder, betrayal, and it was not hard to be affected by the information as we uncovered it. It's a case that stretches 38 years, covers multiple states, involves an FBI probe, and a serial killer on death row. Just a heads up, this story is a two-parter, 
and will continue again in two weeks. Also, this story can be pretty graphic at times when describing acts of child abuse and murder, so if any of you are sensitive to that kind of material, please proceed with caution. Now, here's Jordan. Ann Watson went missing from Emmett, Idaho in November 1977. She was 27 years old and had two young children, an eight-year-old boy and a six-year-old girl. For this story, we'll call them John and Sarah, not their real names. At the time of Marie's disappearance, her children, John and Sarah, had been placed in the temporary custody of a couple named Michael and Dorothy Rogers. It's difficult to ascertain how or why this custody was given. Dorothy said that the children were legally given to her because Marie was unable to care for them as a prostitute and a drug addict, and that Marie had signed all rights to her children away permanently. Marie, however, insisted that the custody was only temporary, and as she was working to get her life back in order, she was fighting to get her kids back from Michael and Dorothy with little success. This is the climate in which Marie went missing. In missing persons cases, it seems like the most substantial bit of information is the last known whereabouts, the last time they were seen alive. It's the last moment one can really hang on to, so it makes sense that it's an important place to start, because after that, it's all speculation. Unfortunately, in this case, the last time Marie was seen was by the very person who, it appears anyway, had the most motivation to make her go missing. Dorothy Rogers was not the person to report her missing, but was the last person to see her alive, telling police a story that's almost impossible to verify. But it's a story that has persisted, one that was, at least for a time, investigated, so it's worth the retelling. This is Dorothy's story, or as clear a retelling as I can piece together. The day is November 21st, 1977. Marie and Dorothy meet up to drive to Ontario, a town on the border of Oregon and Idaho, which is a 40-minute drive to the west from Dorothy's house in Emmett. It's unclear who picks up who or where they meet. Marie wants to get her daughter Sarah's medical records. Why the children's records were in Oregon rather than Idaho is unclear. It's also unclear why Marie would need Dorothy to go with her. Maybe because of Dorothy's custody rights, she was needed to obtain these records. Or maybe this trip was not about medical records at all. Regardless, the two leave in the morning in Dorothy's son Raymond's 1969 Ford Galaxy 500. Dorothy is not only a foster parent to Marie's two children, but also to at least four other children at the time of Marie's disappearance. Raymond was the oldest adopted child, around 17 at the time. It's unclear why they used his car in the first place, as Marie had her own working car, which was later found in the parking lot of a restaurant named Alma's Cafe. This is something I ran into during my investigation of this case. There's only a framework of a narrative in Dorothy's story, one lacking in more concrete details. This drive took place over 38 years ago, with much happening in the interim. I've pieced together Dorothy's version of this day from interviews she gave years later, along with statements from her son Raymond, news footage, and interviews with Detective Tom Nesbitt, who didn't become involved with this case until 1996. 
The story of this drive has been told, rehashed, picked apart, and told again, and it's hard to separate out what really happened on this drive to Ontario. A major roadblock in our investigation was the Gem County Sheriff's Department, the authority in Emmett, where this took place. To begin with, the sheriff leading this investigation, Bill McConnell, died in 2005, so we couldn't question him about this case. Next, we were denied access to the case file. The official denial was because, quote, Unfortunately, this case is still an active open case for an unsolved disappearance. Therefore, it cannot be released. Lastly, calls and emails to Gem County detectives were never returned. However, when I sat down with Detective Tom Nesbitt of the Idaho State Police, he explained that even if I had been granted access to the original case file, there wouldn't have been much there anyway. Well, when I read the report, which was less than a page long, it was really the file and everything that was associated with it. There just really wasn't even anything in the file. I mean, other than the fact that everybody, um, I guess, basically just assumed that she took off. And this is Dorothy's story that Marie just takes off, that we're sketching together now. So if it seems like I have a lot of questions, it's true. I do. So does Nesbitt, the current lead investigator on this case. Back to the road. Dorothy and Marie make it to Ontario. Once they reach Ontario, however, Dorothy says that Marie had no interest in going to any doctor's office, but rather wanted to confront Dorothy about the custody issue. In a 1996 interview with Emmett's local newspaper, The Messenger Index, Dorothy said of this moment, quote, Instead of going to the doctor's office once we got to Ontario, she stopped in the parking lot and just said, I want to talk to you. I knew she didn't want to see that doctor. So, in some parking lot in Ontario, Oregon, Dorothy and Marie have some kind of discussion. Dorothy does not expand on what they talked about, but I think it's easy to assume that there was some sort of confrontation. They never see any doctor or anyone in Ontario, again, making the story even harder to verify. They head back to Emmett after this talk. Their alleged route back to Emmett was through Highway 30, onto Highway 72, which crosses an intersection called Hamilton Corners. According to Dorothy, just past Hamilton Corners, she notices a man in a black car driving behind them. It had been snowing, and the road was slick. The Ford Galaxy begins to slide on the road, and somehow, they get stuck on the side of the road in a small snowbank. That's when the black car pulls in front of them, and a man gets out. Dorothy described the man, someone she had never seen before. Dorothy said, in that same interview we mentioned earlier, quote, I thought he was going to help us, but Marie got out and talked to him. He was greasy, you know, just dirty, like he'd been working, and using dirty language, end quote. Dorothy did not identify the type of car the man was driving. Dorothy describes a brief interaction between Marie and the dirty man. Marie then gets into the man's car and drives away, drives west, away from Idaho. Marie is never seen or heard from again. Here's Detective Nesbitt. Dorothy, uh, Dorothy made the statement to the police at the time that she saw her get into a black unknown type of car with some what she described as shady characters, and they drove off west out of town and they never saw her again. That she was just gone. She was just gone. And that's Dorothy's story, that they went to Ontario, and on the way back, Marie got into a black car with a strange man. 
no one ever saw Marie Watson again. In the weeks following, Jimmy Watson, Marie's then-husband, files a missing persons report with the Gem County Police Department. The original notice appears in the Messenger Index on December 1, 1977, a small column smashed in between a notice for the 4-H Club and other small-town ads, like dinner slated for World War I veterans. There's a picture of Marie, her dark brown hair long and past her shoulders, with a small, knowing smile and what looks like a dark shade of red lipstick. The article chronicles briefly Dorothy's story, adding that relatives fear foul play. The article describes her as, quote, of slender build, five feet and seven and a half inches tall, weighing 110 pounds and has brown hair. She was last seen wearing blue jeans and a dark blue jacket with sheepskin lining. Jimmy Watson would be the relative who feared foul play. Jimmy and Marie married in 1975, and he was not the father of Marie's two children. Jimmy did not have the best reputation locally, and neither did Marie. Both were known in the community as drug addicts and criminals, with Jimmy having a reputation as a thief and Marie a prostitute. This is where the investigation, or lack of investigation, started. Yeah, they didn't really investigate it. They basically just took the report. Jimmy is the one who reported her missing. They found her car behind what was known as Alma's Cafe back then and her purse and a wallet and I think her ID and stuff were still in the car. But they really didn't do anything other than they just took the missing person's report and put it into the system that she was missing. Mm -hmm. But I think that probably part of the problem was was Jimmy was a problem person in Jim County. He was a a, a local criminal and he was kind of a pain to law enforcement, and Mm -hmm. I think they just didn't really care. Wow, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of why when I was asking about what her life was like, was it that... I know, these kind of people type an issue, you know? That's Nesbitt again, and me, asking way too many questions and interjecting constantly. When I hear myself speaking with him, I hear myself trying to sound like a normal person. I don't know if I'm succeeding or not. This was the first meeting my producer and I had with Nesbitt, who we met in person at Idaho State Police Headquarters in Meridian, Idaho. I had never interviewed a detective before, and especially not one decked out in full uniform, as he was at the time. I have to say here that despite finding him somewhat intimidating at first, Nesbitt was infinitely kind and welcoming to all of our questions. He really invested himself in the Marie Watson case, and still thinks about it, many years later, long after his work with the Gem County Sheriff's Department ended. You know, I had reports then that she was into prostitution and things like that. Yeah, I read that. But I really don't, when I started that investigation, I went back all the way to her circles and I couldn't come up with anything that led me down the path of prostitution. I mean, I don't believe that, I I think that was just the mentality of the time. Yeah, or even like a rumor. Yeah. A rumor and small town and Mm -hmm. country people thinking, well, you know, they're just a bunch of dopers and I don't care about them. That bit about how Nesbitt couldn't find any reports of her being a prostitute, I think by the time she ended up in Emmett, around 1975, Marie had started to clean up her life. There are no cases in the Idaho repository showing that Marie was ever charged with any crime. We did, however, find a court case in Colorado in September of 1974, and corroborating with other sources, we think this was a charge of prostitution and drug possession. 
However, at the time of Marie's disappearance, we do have evidence that she was getting her life together. She was attending Boise State University and had two jobs, one at a nursing home and another at the Simplot plant, both in Caldwell, Idaho. It seems like she was trying to start a life when she went missing, a life in Emmett, near her kids. This story about Marie is important because her reputation is huge in this case. It's perhaps the reason why her disappearance wasn't seriously investigated, and as Dorothy would insist, the reason she would just get into a car with a strange man and drive away, because that's the type of person Marie was at the time. But this doesn't appear to be the case, as Nesbitt stated earlier. One important piece of evidence was printed in the Messenger Index. It's an essay that Marie wrote for an English class at Boise State, dated February 7, 1977. It's something Marie wrote in her own words about her life, six months before she goes missing. In the essay, she describes her life growing up in a strict Seventh-day Adventist household. She describes how women were treated by her family, quote, in fact, I can remember no time when women were ever put beside or in front of men in terms of anything, biblical or otherwise. Marie rebelled against her strict upbringing, running away from home more than once. In the essay, she describes the first time that she, quote, turned a trick, writing, quote, I ran away at age 15. I was gone for two days. While I was gone, I rented a hotel room, then allowed myself to be picked up. The man had to pay 50 cents to spend the night. When I was taken home, my mom said, you sold out for a lousy 50 cents. Marie's relationship with her parents growing up was volatile, but around 1968, when Marie was 19, it seemed like things were looking up. Her parents posted a marriage announcement for her in the Lincoln Star on June 28, 1968, to a Jack H. Roach. She marries Jack Roach, becoming Marie Roach, and they have two kids, John, born in 1969, and Sarah, in 1971. It's unclear what happened between Marie and Jack, but it appears that things went south rather quickly. There are accounts that the two had an open marriage, which spiraled out of control because of both drug use and physical violence. Marie left Jack and took the kids with her, around 1973, when her children were just toddlers. After this, there's very little information about Jack Roach. He just disappears from their lives. It's here that it said Marie got into prostitution and continued using drugs, though there's no specific mention of which kind. Her parents, who so lovingly posted a wedding announcement just years earlier, gave her some tough love and an ultimatum, it seemed. They refused to support her, and Marie and the kids were on their own. They left, and it's hard to tell where exactly they went or why. We know she's in Colorado by 1974 because she's charged there. It's here that, to me anyway, it makes the most sense for Michael and Dorothy to enter the picture. Marie is in jail. She does time. She needs someone to take care of her kids and doesn't want to split them up. Marie is adamant about this. How Michael and Dorothy get contacted as potential foster parents is unclear, like much throughout this story. Dorothy later speaks about a familial relation, that Marie is her niece or cousin, but the exact relation is unknown and hard to figure out. Detective Nesbitt doesn't think they're related at all. Despite how Marie knew the Rogers, a major factor working in Mike and Dorothy's favor was their status as being foster parents, that they already had several foster children living with them in Emmett. 
There were foster parents of at least five other children at the time when Sarah and John found themselves in need of a home. In addition to Raymond, there were two other boys and two other girls. So adding John and Sarah to the mix made seven kids in the home, and there may have been more. These are the ones I know about, for sure. Michael and Dorothy were not only the closest thing Marie had to what might have been willing family members, they were foster parents to boot. This, I think and have good reason to assume, is when Sarah and John became the adopted children of Mike and Dorothy Rogers. Of course, because nothing is straightforward in this case, Nesbitt disagrees with this idea of how things went down. Nesbitt asserts that there was no legal status here, no giving of custody, that somehow Michael and Dorothy just took the children from Marie by force. I don't believe she gave them up for adoption. Yeah. I believe that they were taken from her. Really? Yeah. What the gist that I get is that she had fallen on hard times. And so who do you think took the chil- children from her? Was it her husband, Jimmy, or oh, Mike and Dorothy? It was Mike and Dorothy. So you think by force? Yeah, I think they just took them. Hello? Hi, is Jordan available? This is Jordan. Hi, Jordan. My name's Amy Prokopek, and I'm returning your call from the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare. Hi. Hi. So you had some questions about adoption records? I'm doing a story. I'm, I'm writing a story. And I guess I'm just looking for any record of a specific person as being an adopted, like a licensed uh, adoptive parent. Is that something we can do? Um, no. That's not information that we would be able to release. It's an so, old, it's an, it's something that happened a long time ago. Like, when did it? 1969 to about the ni- 1979, so somewhere in there. Um, the likelihood that we would have records um, from that time are small. Okay. Um, most of our records are destroyed after five to ten years. Um, adoption, adoption records mm-hmm. are kept forever. However, they are sealed by the courts. Okay. And, um, the only way that they can become unsealed is for, um, a person to petition the courts to have them unsealed. That was me talking to Idaho Health and Welfare, trying to find any proof that Mike and Dorothy were legal foster parents in Idaho. As she very patiently explained, there's no way, without a discovery motion filed to reveal it, to verify if parents are registered by Health and Welfare. However, Nesbitt did this and discovered that Mike and Dorothy were never registered as foster parents with Idaho Health and Welfare. However, you do not need to be registered with the state of Idaho to adopt a child. One could adopt with private agencies instead. There is evidence that Michael and Dorothy did have connections to private adoption agencies and had a, I'll call it a knack, for lack of a better word, for finding children who weren't wanted and who had been abandoned. Dorothy called these her, quote, street kids. Nesbitt called them throwaway kids. Dorothy was specifically trying to find children with no parents, had nowhere to go. Right. And so whatever happened to them just happens. And... You know, the mentality back in those days, and, you know, sadly, it was just, you know, there were throwaway children back then. John and Sarah were different in this respect. 
They were not throwaway kids, but it probably didn't seem like it to Mike and Dorothy. They had no father around, and their mother was addicted to drugs and had been busted for prostitution. When the Rogers adopted John and Sarah, it's clear that they thought the situation was more permanent, even changing the children's names to Rodney and Joanne. They also had them refer to Marie, their mother, as their aunt. But it's clear that Marie never gave up hope of getting her kids back, regardless of how they ended up with Mike and Dorothy. By all accounts, Marie never thought the arrangement with the Rogers was permanent. After her stint in Colorado, it's clear she moves to Idaho to be near them. After leaving jail, there's some evidence of Marie calling Dorothy and asking her to come get her. This would be late 1974, early 1975. Dorothy claims Marie was sick on drugs and that she took care of her, letting her recuperate in the Rogers home. Dorothy said, quote, Marie had been working in prostitution and she got very sick. Marie's sickness very well could have been drugs. She weighed under 100 pounds. She asked if she could stay with us. I asked her how close she could get to Idaho. She said Ontario, Oregon. So I went and picked her up. At some point, Marie gets better. She finds a job and meets Jimmy Watson, the man she marries on May 14, 1975. Jimmy Watson was an interesting character, as Detective Nesbitt described before. Jimmy is a short, squat man. In every picture I could find of him, he's wearing a cowboy hat and has a small, ruddy face. He had many run-ins with the law in Emmett, and it's hard to imagine that he made Marie's life easier, from a legal standpoint anyway. Detective Nesbitt had more choice words about Jimmy. I mean, I think she was a single mom. I mean, I don't want to talk bad about Jimmy, but I think he was pretty worthless as a father. Right. Uh, he was in and out of jail and in and out of drugs and in and out of alcohol. And, and I think that she was pretty much on her own as a single mother, even though Jimmy was around. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, she realized I've got to do this on my own. Even if Jimmy wasn't a perfect stepfather or even a perfect law-abiding citizen, it appeared that he loved and cared about Marie. I found a picture of Marie and Jimmy in an old article. They're out fishing. They look happy. Jimmy was, after all, the one who reported her missing and was truly concerned about her safety. It seemed like he tried to look after her as best he could. During this time while she's working, she's trying to get her children back from Michael and Dorothy. But her reasons may not have been purely just because she wanted to get her children back. It's here, from 1975 to 1977, the years leading up to her disappearance, that Marie hears or maybe even sees how Michael and Dorothy Rogers are treating their foster children. And what she learned was horrifying. It seems like, in the 70s, people in the small town of Emmett knew about child abuse in the Rogers' home, and rumors of child abuse were widespread. Some may even have reported it, but little was done about it. I don't know why or how health and welfare continued to place children in that home. I know that when, uh, you know, I, I discovered some of the reports from the 70s when I, was, uh, when I reopened that, and uh, I, I actually tracked down the detective or the investigator that was at the sheriff's office in 77. Mm-hmm. He couldn't rem- remember a lot of details, but he did tell me that he'd gotten a report that um, was chained up in a box upstairs in the upstairs portion of the home. About that beep, 
Nesbitt uses John's real name, and John wants nothing to do with what happened to him while with the Rogers. He's moved out of state, changed his name, and refused to speak to even Nesbitt about the case. Detective Nesbitt tells a shocking story of Marie's son, John, escaping from the Rogers' home. It was November, early December. He somehow got out of the box and the chains, jumped out of the two-story window of the home. He jumped in the river, and he followed the river all the way back to town. It was unknown to me what law enforcement agency picked him up, but somebody in law enforcement picked him up and took him back to the house. It was disturbing to, to think that no one thought to either take him seriously, listen to what he was telling them, or even go in and investigate the house itself. I found Sarah's blog, published in 2010, and she writes of similar horrors, of eating dog food, of being chained to a wall, of other physical and sexual abuse, especially at the hands of Michael Rogers. We also found news footage of a boy who lived in the home, named Kevin, showing large welts and burns on his back. Needless to say, stories of child abuse in the Rogers' home were easy to find, and so was the evidence that abuse really had occurred. I want to pause here to talk about Michael Rogers. You'll hear a lot from Dorothy Rogers in this story. She's always talking to the media and police, but Michael never does. He's a looming and mysterious figure in the story because I could never find him on the record as saying anything to the media or to the police. It's all Dorothy. Though he fades into the background at times, he's the central figure. It was bizarre. Yeah, this is it. Yep, Jim County. Early yeah, that's, it, that's it, that's it, that's it. That's my producer Daniel and I at the Idaho State Archives opening Michael Rogers' inmate file, now public record. He was arrested in 1978 for the rape of his adopted daughter, Kathleen. This is the first time we've seen his face. You can hear we're excited, nervous. We had spent so much time researching this case with only a picture in our heads of what Michael looked like. He was always this larger-than-life figure. Nesbitt describes him. I'd say he's, at the time that I tried to interview him, I would guess him to be about 6'5", probably 310 pounds, somewhere around there. Great big guy. Maybe a little bit shorter than that, but probably somewhere right in that range. I'm six foot tall, and he was probably a good four or five inches taller than me. So he'd be pretty imposing. <laughs> yeah, he'd be for, uh, especially for a woman. His file suggests something different. At the time he was processed, in March 1979, Michael's height is 71 inches, or 5'11", and his weight is 210 pounds. This would be over 100 pounds on Marie when she went missing. That's big, but not quite as big as Nesbitt described. I don't want to imply that Nesbitt was wrong in his description of Michael, but I do think there is something about him that would make one want to add superlatives. What is clear is that Michael was imposing to those who met or heard about him, leaving an impression of size, of being towering, dangerous even. In the picture they took at the prison, he does have large features, a wide nose, big flat lips, heavy black eyebrows, and a stunned, confused expression. He's got his inmate number hanging from his neck, and the photo itself is haunting, like it's from an age much older than 1979. Maybe it isn't so much what he looks like, it's what he's accused of, and later charged with, that make the strongest adjectives necessary. With the reports of horrific child abuse, and the incest charge against him for the rape of his daughter, Kathleen, 
other rumors swirled around Michael and Dorothy too. Rumors that I have a hard time finding direct evidence of. That the Rogers were practicing Satanists. Satanists who adopted children to ritualistically abuse them. This is something that Detective Nesbitt believes motivated the Rogers to adopt children in the first place. What I uncovered when I was doing my investigation was that these kids were subject to uh, satanic rituals that involved sexual abuse of the children, sacrificing, and I suspect that that's why the ones that are dead or gone, or is that, I believe that's what happened to them. Sarah, talking to the media years later, told similar stories of ritual abuse. Quote, I remember being put into a room. They would go in another room. They did terrible things to little boys. They would take the little boys and dump blood on them. There were pentagrams on the walls. The whole room was painted black. Of Sarah's stories of ritual abuse, this is one of the more tame ones, which I hope says something about the horrific things she remembers as happening to her. Nesbitt is adamant that the Rogers were practicing Satanists, who abused their children in the practice of their religion. Adding these things together, Nesbitt drew his conclusion of what he thought happened to Marie. So what I think happened was, in some kind of an, a drug-induced, you know, satanic ritualistic scenario with all these weirdos around, at some point in time they offered her money for the children. She probably took that money and then once she came out of being high and realized what was going on, I think what happened was she wanted her children back and tried to give them their money back and they wouldn't take it because the, the children or the, the rituals were more important to those people than the money. To make things even more complicated, Dorothy said that it was Marie who was a Satanist and not the Rogers family. As Dorothy told the Messenger Index in 1996, quote, she, Marie, carried around a Satanic Bible. She told me she had been with devil worshippers. Dorothy also describes herself as a God-fearing woman, adding that her and her adopted children had always gone to church together. She also defends herself against Satanic rituals, saying, they say we drank blood. There's no truth to that. We did butcher cows. There was no occult activity. We said blessings before we ate, if you considered that occult. While I investigated this case, I think it's fair to say I was somewhat skeptical of these reports, even coming from a seasoned detective, like Nesbitt. I couldn't help but think of Satanic Panic, a nickname for the wave of allegations against supposed Satanic activities throughout America, occurring in the 80s and 90s. The events in this case did happen before then, but just barely. Certain things about this story are characteristic of satanic panic cases, namely that a family practiced or indoctrinated members into Satanism, that the Satanism is multi-generational, that Satanism is the reason children are abused or even sacrificed, and scenes of pentagrams and spilled blood. Another trait? There is very little evidence left behind that Satanism occurred at all. But it's impossible for me to just dismiss these reports as another satanic panic story, even if I don't have as much or any concrete evidence for these rumors. They are so rampant in this story. I can't dismiss Sarah's memories and what she experienced living with the Rogers, which seems truly like a nightmare. See? I can't think of someone hurting a child in the way she was hurt without resorting to extremes. As far as proof goes, Detective Nesbitt said that he spoke with people throughout the community who confirmed that practicing Satanists lived in Emmett at the time of Marie's disappearance. 
the satanic worshiping and the sacrificing, and there was a lot going on. Yeah, I had read about that, and I it was so shocking, and it seemed like the plot of a movie that I kind of didn't maybe give it enough credence. Would you say that that was accurate? That it there was, was accurate. Really? Yeah. How, what evidence was there of that? Well, there wasn't any evidence by the time I did well, the investigation, right. but based on my interviews with several people that were involved in that at the time, yeah, um, some of which were really scared to talk to me, and others just said, you know, listen, uh, that's my religious belief, and that's what we do, and you know, right. you know, we were practicing that way back in those days. We don't do it now, but that's the way it was. You can hear my question, where is the evidence for that? It's all secondhand rumors. Regardless, Nesbitt speaks of the fear people have, and that is something there is more than enough evidence for. People in Emmett, including the Gem County Sheriff's Department, were scared of the Rogers, particularly Michael. In fact, the police were so afraid of Michael that it seriously stalled any real investigation. Here Nesbitt describes one of the most shocking aspects of the story. I'll let him tell it. I know that in 1977, when this all went on, Law enforcement were scared of Mike and Dorothy. Really? They'd gone out to the house to interview him, and Mike threatened them with a shotgun, and so they just left. They, they took no action. When he threatened them with a weapon, they, didn't, they just left and didn't go back. That's right. When Jem County shows up to question Michael and Dorothy about Marie, Michael grabbed a shotgun and told them to get off the property. And they did. They didn't go back. They were afraid of Michael. Satanist or not, he made people afraid. There's one man who was not afraid of Michael, or at least that's what he claimed. His name is Dee Burr, an Idaho private investigator hired by Jimmy Watson and later by Marie's parents. By all accounts, Burr was the only person doing any active investigation on this case, and it's thanks to Detective Burr that Michael was arrested and charged at all. Before describing Burr's investigation, I have to say a few words here about the man himself. Here's where I would like to play a clip of his voice, but he never agreed to an official interview. He's still active as a PI, but he dabbles in other money-making ventures to stay afloat. He was hard to find, and when I did, he explained what investigating the Marie Watson case was like. The first thing he told me was how little he was originally paid for the Marie Watson case, and that when he thought about offering his expertise and what that was worth, he wished that he could charge $100,000 for full access to what he had in his possession, his case file, an interview. Though I rather sheepishly admitted I couldn't pay him even $100 for his input, he agreed to meet with me at his home in Emmett. We are entering Gem County, population 6,284. We are going to meet Detective Burr. Burr, B-U-R-R. He's a private investigator, and we're pretty much hoping that we come out of the meeting alive yeah. at this point. That was my producer Daniel and I driving to Emmett. Listening back to this, I hear how nervous we are, even though we're laughing it off. This was the first time we had ever been there. It's only a short drive from Boise, where we live and produce this podcast. Maybe after reading stories about Michael, we were a little keyed up about going to visit a new place and to the home office of a man we'd never met before. We're pulling into the house slash business. There's an open sign in the window, but there's no sign on. 
We couldn't record our conversation with Burr, but he sat down with us, giving us his history. He's a big, friendly man whose hands are the thing I remember. They were covered in old, faded tattoos and adorned with gold rings. Ultimately, Burr wanted to make a deal we couldn't deliver on as a small, independent podcast. His information, in exchange for our help writing and publishing stories from his extensive career, which includes time working as an undercover DEA agent and a sheriff of nearby Idaho City. Though I made no promises, Burr spoke at length about his involvement with the Marie Watson case, unofficially, walking me through his investigation. First, he was hired by Jimmy Watson, and later, by Marie's parents. He described not one, but at least two times that the Gem County Sheriff's Department was scared off by Michael Rogers. Burr, however, claimed that he was not scared to investigate this case, even if it meant confronting the Rogers. It was clear to Burr that Marie's disappearance did not happen the way Dorothy claimed it did. He even took the original ride to Ontario, as Dorothy described it, and said that it was physically impossible with the time frame she gave. Burr also found additional crucial clues that I think have to be mentioned here. One of the first things his investigation found was evidence that Dorothy, at the time of Marie's disappearance, had somehow sustained a wrist injury. He also examined Raymond's car, the Ford Galaxy, and found the car seats missing and a fillet knife inside. Burr was also the one who uncovered that Marie's wallet was left inside of her car when found parked behind Alma's cafe. Burr was the lone investigator on this case, and I'm sad not to have his interview here. I chased him for months, and ultimately he said, quote, As I have said, I did a lot of work on this case pro bono, and I think I'll wait until one of the TV shows expresses interest, and maybe I'll make some sort of compensation to make up for the previous donation. As Burr investigated Marie's disappearance, he found evidence of more crimes, specifically of child abuse. What I'm about to describe is graphic, so sensitive listeners, be advised. Burr told me the story of the rape of Kathleen, the crime Michael was later charged with. Somehow, Burr found out about what had happened to her, that Kathleen, as a punishment, was forced to strip naked in front of Michael and her adopted brothers. Then Michael raped her on his and Dorothy's bed. Dorothy found out about this and got mad at Michael's infidelity. She took the mattress into the backyard and burned it. Burr says later that he actually found the burned mattress. In addition, he found evidence that when Marie went missing, she was very close to getting her kids back, maybe even days away from having legal custody again. Burr said two days. That's how close she was. Because of Marie's legal efforts, Burr had enough to serve Michael and Dorothy with a writ of habeas corpus, which he did in late 1977 or early 1978. A writ of habeas corpus, literally produce the body, is a legal motion demanding that a person produce evidence that they have the legal right to the custody of a person. This would have forced Michael and Dorothy to provide evidence that they had legal custody to Sarah and John, and if they couldn't, there could have possibly been a trial. With this threat, and with evidence for Kathleen's rape, the heat was coming down on the Rogers. This is when they fled. Here's where I would like to be able to say that a huge manhunt began, looking for the Rogers and the children who fled from a legal motion with children that they likely did not have any legal right to. Unfortunately, this is not what happens, and Burr begins a cross-country hunt with just himself and his partner, a lot of which, he alleges, he was never paid for. The Rogers leave state in spring, 1978, and head for Oregon. 
According to news articles published later, Raymond, Kevin, and Kathleen either stay behind or run away, so the Rogers took Marie's children, Sarah and John, along with Rocky and Michelle, with them. Kathleen, according to news reports, flees to Gem County Police, and they place her in state custody. It's interesting to note that Marie's parents get involved here, hiring Burr. Until this point, they were somewhat silent on her disappearance. Whatever was going on between Marie and her parents, it's clear that they do want their grandchildren found and safe. They even attempted to get custody in Idaho after Marie went missing, only to learn that the Rogers were nowhere to be found. Burr described to me his trek through various states following leads. The Rogers went through West Coast states, first going through Oregon. Burr said that they, quote, followed the Salvation Army, meaning that they went from shelter to shelter and charity to charity. At some point, Michael signs over property rights of their Idaho home to Raymond, who moved in with another family after the Rogers left. Some of the places that the Rogers fled to were extremely remote. Burr spoke of a place called Harney Lake, a remote stretch of nothingness where the Rogers were said to be at one point. He even had a helicopter looking for the children. This was the reason why Burr says he continued his pursuit, despite the fact that he wasn't being paid very much. He wanted to get the children out of Michael and Dorothy's custody. It was really important to him. The Rogers get around on this trip, perhaps because they know they're being pursued. Burr described how he picked up trails of them in places like Burns, Oregon, Walla Walla, Washington, and throughout California. Somehow, they end up in Arkansas. It's unclear which states they crossed through and when. Nesbitt did not spare his words when he talked about the Rogers' journey through the states. And there, and there were, and there were more. I mean, there's more. When you start opening up their lives in Oregon, there's there's kids that went missing in Oregon, and then when they went to Arkansas, there's kids that went missing in Arkansas. You know, they're serial killers, and I, I don't have any doubt in my mind about that. Bird tracks the Rogers and the children down to Mountain Pine, Arkansas, a small town an hour and a half away from Little Rock. Mountain Pine was a mill town back in the 70s, and Michael had worked at a mill back in Idaho. It makes sense that maybe he heard about work in the remote city of Mountain Pine and took the family there. Burr went to Mountain Pine, describing how everywhere they went, they were accused of some form of child abuse. Finding the Rogers and the four children took a lot of legwork for Burr, who posted flyers, spoke with school administrators, went to truck stops, made phone calls, and chased down leads and tips in many different states. When Berg got to Mountain Pine, he made his presence known at the children's school, making sure they knew he was there. He said that he heard from neighbors and others in Mountain Pine that he was like a ray of hope for the four children. Berg got in with the sheriff, connecting Arkansas authorities with those in Idaho. Shortly after, Michael and Dorothy were arrested and the children were taken out of their custody. Here is where Burr's long pursuit finally ends, and it ends happily. It's a moment that Burr says he'll never forget. He described how, when he finally rescued them, all four of them were at the sheriff's office. All four of them swarmed him, hugging him tightly, not wanting to let go. All four of the children are given to Marie's parents in temporary custody. They lived in Kansas. Sarah and John stay with their grandparents, Marie's mother, Lucille, even described that the kids, once in their custody, quote, were doing really good for all they've gone through. Their teachers say they're doing fine. Mm -hmm. 
Dorothy is never charged with anything, not with taking the kids across state lines, not child abuse, not anything. Michael is charged with the rape of Kathleen and is extradited back to Idaho. He pleads guilty and does three years on a five-year sentence on good behavior. His prison files detail that he was a good worker who followed directions and did what he was told. However, his paperwork made frequent reference to his mental state, with one labor detail reading, quote, All indications are that Mr. Rogers experiences extreme mental instability. Then adding, Mr. Rogers' background indicates some strong positive traits, but this aberration needs continuing extensive psychiatric attention. Michael is never charged with any other crime related to his adopted children. Dorothy and Michael divorce in 1980, while Michael's still in jail. Michael's jail records also note his relationship with Dorothy, adding, Mike's biggest problem was his wife Dorothy. For the most part, Mike was amiable, but when Dorothy got him all worked up, he'd get pretty hard to handle. He will return to the community just fine if he stays away from Dorothy. End quote. Neither Michael nor Dorothy are ever charged with any crime in the disappearance of Marie Ann Watson, something that Burr said he thought they had more than enough evidence for. Michael gets out of prison in 1983, and the investigation into the disappearance of Marie Watson hits a dead end. That is, until 1996, when... 36-year-old Raymond Rogers is accused of killing and dismembering his girlfriend. Two days ago, her remains were discovered underneath his San Diego apartment complex. Rogers is charged with one count of murder, but that may just be the beginning. Here in Idaho, Rogers may hold the key to solving a missing persons case that's stumped authorities for nearly 20 years. Night Beat reporter Mark Mathis. Two weeks from now, on the next episode of Thin Air, Raymond Rogers, that's right, the adopted son of Michael and Dorothy, is arrested in San Diego in 1996 for the murder of three people, reigniting the Marie Watson case back in Emmett. Also, we find Dorothy Rogers. Hello? Hi, I'm looking for Dorothy Rogers. You got me, and what are you selling? Music for this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Their music can be listened to and downloaded at blue.sessions.bandcamp.com. This episode also featured music by Chris Zabriskie. For download links, visit his website at chriszabriskie.com. And while you're at it, visit our website at thinairpodcast.com for links to these musicians and much more. Thin Air is an independently financed, produced, and published podcast. We depend on support by listeners like you. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please donate at our Patreon page. The address is patreon.com forward slash thinairpodcast. Donation links are located at our website in the upper right corner. Also, if you're an iTunes listener, please rate and subscribe. Your feedback is valuable to our success and helps us to reach more listeners. Join us again in two weeks when Jordan continues her investigation.